Friends, if you could turn with me again to the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 7. While Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to engage Israel in battle. But that day the Lord thundered with a loud thunder against the Philistines and threw them into such a panic that they were routed before the Israelites. The men of Israel rushed out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines, slaughtering them along the way to a point below beth Car. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen. He named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far has the Lord helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not invade Israelite territory again. Well, friends, as we take a closer look at God's word, let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that we aren't alone. And Father, we pray now that you would be with us and by your spirit, you would apply your wonderful word to our hearts. And we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, at a meeting of Baptist leaders in the late 1700s, a freshly ordained minister by the name of William Carey stood up to argue for the value of overseas missions. But as he began to put forward his case, he was interrupted by an old minister who shouted at him, Young man, sit down. You're an enthusiast. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he'll do so without consulting you. But rather than sitting down and going quiet, before long, Kerry had organised a new missionary society. And at its first meeting, he preached a sermon called Expect Great Things from God by Attempting Great Things for God. The following year, he put his words into action as he, along with his young family and a fellow worker called John Thomas, set sail for India. But having hit shore, they were immediately hit with setback after setback. With zero converts after the first couple of years, John Thomas concluded the cause was hopeless and headed back for home. But Carey ploughed on, confident that the gospel was for all nations. But India seemed to be the exception. As Carey hit his seventh year, he had still not seen a single person come to Christ. And so in October 1799, he upped and moved to a settlement near Calcutta. And finally, in December the following year, Carey baptised his very first convert. Two months later, he finished translating the New Testament into the Bengali language. Over the next 28 years, he and a small team of helpers would translate the Bible into five other Indian dialects as well. All in all, Carey spent 41 years in the subcontinent, And when he left to be with the Lord, Christianity had a firm foothold in that country. Now friends, at this point you may be wondering, what does a Baptist Christian missionary have in common with an Old Testament Jewish priest and prophet? Especially considering our reading today, which clearly shows Samuel was no missionary to the foreigners foreigners of his day, that's for sure. So what's the connection? Well, friends, consider this. When Samuel gets up and speaks those words in verse 3, when he preaches this sermon to Israel, 
Don't miss the fact a good chunk of time has gone by. 20 years in all. 20 years that were so uneventful that all that is needed to sum it all up is a single verse. Although we can skip over this single verse without a second thought, to do so would miss that Samuel, like our mate Carey, has been toiling away, ministering away faithfully day in and day out that entire time. And if William found India hard going, seven years without a single convert, times that by about three. 20 years not in a foreign land where you'd expect resistance, but in the promised land. Samuel's dry spell was among God's very own chosen people. And so our reading begins today by telling us it was a long time. And friends, just a little side note, if you read the commentaries, most agree the book of Samuel was written by Samuel. So as he pens those words at the start of verse 2, he's not complaining, just letting you know this period was a serious grind. And friends, when we think about the start of his ministry, this becomes even more apparent, doesn't it? Wind back the clock 20 years and a few and there's fresh-faced Samuel, woken up in the middle of the night by a heavenly vision. Yahweh speaks to him directly and assures him that Eli and his two sons would soon be removed. Removed so faithful Samuel can step in and lead God's people back to him. And sure enough, God's word about Eli's house is soon fulfilled. Hophni and Phileas and Eli all taken out in a single day. But there's something else that happens on that day that God doesn't let Samuel in on. The Philistines are going to steal the ark. Who knows what was going through Samuel's head when news of that reached him. But we can be fairly confident when he hears of its miraculous return All is now in place for Israel's spiritual revival. And Samuel is in the prime of his life now to lead it. But things then go south again. The ark is mistreated. Men start dropping like flies. And so it's quickly moved on to Kiriath-Jerim. And once there, it's carefully guarded. And the plagues and the deaths stop. And so with the ark no longer treated like a good luck charm, a type of normality returns. A year passes. One year turns into two, three, five, ten, and on and on. And so Samuel goes right through his twenties his 30s, and into his 40s with Israel in a type of holding pattern. They now fear God, which, as we said last week, is the beginning. It's the beginning of wisdom. But all of Samuel's service, his teaching and preaching, don't move them from this beginning 
see them spiritually build on this beginning one iota. Now, friends, I know this sermon isn't solely on this period in Samuel's life where he sees zero fruit. I know things are about to change and we're about to get to that. But before we do, we need to know the reality is much of, indeed the majority of, our walk with God. It's a verse 2 walk, isn't it? Day to day, year by year walk of faithful trust in God's promises and obedience to his word. And let's be honest, the fruit of this, the benefit of this, the effect of this can sometimes be pretty hard to see, if at all. So much of our Christian walk happens in verse 2. Not much to report. What was Samuel's thinking during his verse 2 time? Well, we don't know. All we know is Samuel didn't drop the ball. He knew God's promises are sure and God will fulfill his promises. But the timing isn't up to Samuel. It's up to God. And with that knowledge, he continued on as a lone, faithful voice in the land. Friends, may this truth embedded in verse 2 be an encouragement to you in your walk, especially if it's feeling a little bit uphill at the moment. And so Samuel's 20-year-long trudge uphill ticks by. And then suddenly the spiritual ground beneath him begins to shift So why? What's happened to finally cause Israel, as we see at the end of verse 2, to mourn and seek after the Lord? Well, friends, 20 years has been a long time for the Philistines as well. Long enough for them to forget what happened to Dagon, what happened to them when the ark was among them. Tumors and rats? What tumors and rats? And so they begin to beat the war drum again. And it's not long before Israel begin to hear it. There's a famous quote about war that goes, there are no atheists in foxholes. Nothing like the threat of extermination to cause you to rethink where you're at with God. But who will Israel turn to to guide them back to him? Well, who else than the one who's been faithfully toiling away, ministering among them, urging them to get serious for the last 20 years? And so with their lives now on the line, the memo goes out, get Samuel. We need Samuel. And as he stands to address them, he's understandably sceptical, isn't he? Look again at how he begins. If, if you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the asterisks 
and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. Friends, let's translate Samuel's words here into plain Aussie language. If you guys are fair dinkum about this, are really ready to return to God, and don't come crying to me. You know what to do. I've been telling you this for a little while now. Get rid of your other gods. Smash your idols and your astropoles, etc., etc. Guys, the Philistines aren't the real problem here. No, they're gods that you worship. They're the problem. Now, friends, this call by Samuel in verse 3 has a familiar tone about it, doesn't it? Indeed, pick up any prophet in the Old Testament and sooner or later, you're going to see Samuel's call here repeated pretty much word for word. There's a reason the first commandment says what it says. Because loving and serving God and serving and loving him only was a constant struggle for the Israelites. As indeed it is for us. Foreign gods, lesser gods, the God of money, the God of war, the God of sex, the God of power, the God of pleasure, the God of leisure are all still with us. They're called just as strong and alluring. As such, Samuel's sermon here isn't just for Israel's ears, but ours. Verse 3 equally challenges us and asks us, while we are here serving God today, does that translate to the rest of the week? Or is that set aside for our idols? Friends, this in essence is the challenge that Samuel is putting to Israel as he looks them in the eye and says, you want God to show up? Then clean house. Purge your heart and lives of other gods. And so Samuel left them with that challenge. And Israel took it up, didn't they? Verse 4, have a look. So the Israelites put away their Baals and their Ashtoreths and served the Lord only. And so seeing Israel were serious, were fed income, he then calls on them to assemble at this place called Mizpah. Okay, so why do they have to all trek out there to this place called Mizpah? What's so special about Mizpah? Well, remembering all of this is happening in the context of a Philistine invasion, Mizpah is the perfect choice. The name literally means watchtower because it provides the perfect vantage point to spot the Philistines' advance. But that's not all. Mizpah, although up on high ground, was also equipped with a freshwater spring. And so Israel's army gather at this perfect military position. But under the guidance of Samuel, look at what they all do when they arrive, verse 6. When they had assembled at Mizpah, they drew water and poured it out before the Lord. 
On that day they fasted and there they confessed, we have sinned against the Lord. So here's the picture. The army arrive at Mizpah and gather around the spring and begin to draw water. But rather than drinking it or storing it for battle, they pour it out again. Pour it out before the Lord. Why? What's going on? Keep reading. On that day they fasted. So this army prepares for battle by rejecting both water and food. So if those two essential fuels for battle are rejected, what fuel are they going to be relying on? Keep reading. There they confessed we have sinned against the Lord. Now friends, here's the deal. Here's what's going on here at Mizpah. The Israelites under the guidance of Samuel will not be depending upon their own strength to win this battle, but the strength of God and his alone. Samuel promised that if they return to God and commit themselves solely to him, God won't simply help them, he's going to deliver them. And so Samuel prepares Israel for battle by holding basically a massive worship service, a huge revival meeting. Before long, word gets back to the Philistines that Israel have assembled at this place called Mizpah, which means to them just one thing. It's back on. And so they respond, verse 7, the rulers of the Philistines came up to attack them. And when the Israelites heard of it, they were afraid because of the Philistines. They said to Samuel, Do not stop crying out to the Lord our God for us, that he may rescue us from the hand of the Philistines. Now friends, in this response, don't miss how different this is to the last time they were in this exact same position. Roaring with confidence, weren't they? Whooping it up because they dragged God out onto the front line. All he had to do was jump out of his golden box and help them. But here now, what a change it is. All their spiritual hubris and misplaced confidence completely gone. As they, under the faithful leadership of Samuel now knew God owed them nothing. They were now acutely aware the wages of their sin deserves death. And here comes the Philistines, sword out to the ready to oblige. But Israel, as fearful as they were, don't draw their own weapons, nor do they run. No, verse 8, they say to Samuel, do not stop crying out to the Lord our God for us that he may rescue us from the hand of the Philistines. And so Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it up as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. Samuel cried out to the Lord on Israel's behalf and the Lord answered him. While Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to engage Israel in battle. But that day the Lord thundered with a loud thunder. And friends, as this supernatural thunder echoed out, if we've forgotten the words of Hannah, now the time is to remember them. Chapter 2, verse 9. 
It is not by strength that one prevails those who oppose the Lord, for they will be shattered. He will thunder against them from heaven. And so this promised thunder comes. How it came and how it was felt, who can know? Except to say it was experienced in two completely different ways. For Israel, it was awesome and it was wonderful. For the Philistines, horrific and terrifying. And so repentant Israel watched from their vantage point what happens to the unrepentant. God completely routes the Philistines before their very eyes without them having to lift a finger. And with the battle fought and won by him, the men of Israel, verse 11, then rushed out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines, slaughtering them along the way to a point below beth Car. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen. He named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far has the Lord helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not invade Israelite territory again. Not that they won't try again, mind you. But friends, that's for another day. For now, as we close, we're left pondering this marker, this stone that Samuel sets up. Why does he set it up? Well, so it may continue to teach and preach Israel long after Samuel's gone. The stone was to stand and tell future generations the story of chapter 7. The story of the time Israel got rid of all their gods and idols. It was to testify to how they had then gathered at Mizpah and depended solely on God. But most of all, this stone was to stand as a monument of what happened next. A glorious, miraculous, God-given victory secured by Samuel's intercession on their behalf, the heart of which involved the death of a single innocent lamb. And as kids back then saw the stone and heard the story in all its detail, you can imagine them asking their parents, why wasn't Samuel's heartfelt intercession, why wasn't his heartfelt prayer enough for them on that day? Why did that little innocent baby lamb also have to lose its life? And the answer would be given. Because sinning against our God is serious. It's deadly serious. As sorry as the people were for rebelling against God, sorry isn't enough. Rebellion carries the death penalty. But as Samuel the faithful priest knew, God has provided a way of pardon, a way of forgiveness, by way of a substitute. Now, friends, in this we see, don't we, that the stone of Ebenezer, under the wonderful providence of God, not only pointed Israel back to this great deliverance, but forward to another deliverance, an even greater deliverance, speaking and pointing to the moment where another prophet, 
at another stream will point the repentant gathered there to another spotless substitute. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And take it away by one perfect spotless sacrifice he did. And in so doing, the advancing relentless enemy was also immediately crushed and destroyed. Not the Philistines, but a far greater, more powerful foe. 